Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you get right down to it, the human body is basically a bag of water with a bunch of chemicals mixed in. That's an oversimplification, of course, but it is a reasonable description of the squishy bits that make us up. It's also true that every once in a while, something, or maybe a lot of things, go a little wonky with these squishy bits. And yeah, we often hear of some guy up in the Ural Mountains who's 117 years old who credits his longevity to bacon and unfiltered cigarettes, but, you know, that's the exception. The rest of us have to be constantly vigilant about our health, eating right, sleeping enough, reducing stress, all that sort of stuff. But not everything is preventable. Bad genes, disease, accidents. These same rules apply to the musicians we follow. I mean, they're human just like us. And every once in a while, we hear about their health challenges. And quite often, they're very open about their issues. They want to be honest with their fans. And maybe by bringing attention to their situations, they can encourage awareness of the problem. Maybe get people with similar health problems to seek treatment. In other cases, we only find out that there was a problem after the fact. And that knowledge helps us understand what happened. So, without betraying any confidences or digging into private health care records... Here are some musicians who have battled their bodies and their brains, just like us regular folk. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. We often think of our musical heroes as indestructible, but they're not. They have accidents and illnesses just like the rest of us. So I thought it might be instructive to sort through some ailments that have befallen these people. Let's start with Dave Grohl, because he was able to turn something potentially catastrophic into a great victory. Come with me to when it all happened in Gothenburg, Sweden, on June 12, 2015. The Foos were headlining a big outdoor gig on their European tour at Yulevi Stadium, and everything was, well, so far so good. They opened their set with Everlong, traditional thing for them, and then came Monkey Wrench. And, uh, well, listen... Finish the show, but right now, 
You got to do, you got to do second battle right now. You got to do it. Can you do it? Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, right now, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to fix my leg. But then I'm going to come back. And we're going to point for you again. Now, Dave, of course, did return to the stage that day to finish the show, but a post-gig exam revealed a badly broken tibia in his right leg, along with a dislocated ankle. Surgery and lots of morphine was required, and a bunch of shows were canceled, including two massive ones at Wembley Stadium. I had tickets to one of those. Damn it. And a headliner slot at Glastonbury. But with so much money at stake, I mean, millions and millions in lost ticket grosses of up to one and a quarter million dollars per show, plus insurance costs and a myriad of other things, Dave was determined to get back on the road as soon as possible. And that's when he conceived the Dave of Thrones, that customized seat that allowed him to play and sing for the rest of the tour. The tour restarted on July 4th in Dave's hometown of Washington, D.C. It was the 20th anniversary of the release of the first Foo Fighters album, and here's what it sounded like. The Foo Fighters returned to the stage after Dave's broken leg. And for the rest of the tour, Dave told some version of this story. Let me tell you a little story. We were on tour and we were in Europe playing a gig in Sweden. It was a beautiful night just like tonight. Big ass stadium full of people. We started playing our set. It was all good. And then guess what? I fell off the f***ing stage. Now for any of you old that ain't got YouTube, it looked a little something like this. Let's see. See the clip. Come on, show me the clip. I hit the ground so hard. I dislocated my ankle and I broke my leg. But I met a nice doctor. And he said, look. dislocated your ankle. I said, okay. He said, I got to put it back in place right now. I said, okay. And then he put it back in place. And I said, can I go finish the show now? And he said, no, wait. No, 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 no. We got to put it 
brace on it. And I said, cool, you got a brace? And he said, no, we got to go get one. And I said, how about this? You go get the brace, and I'll go play. I said, when you get the brace, you come back and tell me we'll put it on. And he said, well, I got to hold your ankle in place. And I said, well, then your ass is coming up on stage with me right now. So that's my Swedish friend. And then we had a great show. And then I went and got a fing x ray. I see that. I got jacked up. And I had a little bit of surgery. And I got to sit in my bed with this thing. Let's see that. You know why I'm smiling? Because I think my hands got morphine in it. Dave Grohl and the whole broken leg story. Now let's talk about Aaron Saloniak. He's the drummer for Billy Talent. In the late 1990s, he began to notice some tingling and some weakness while he was working on the assembly line at the Chrysler factory in Brampton. When he had it checked out, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, an inflammatory disease that messes with the nerves. He got medication for it, but when Billy Talent took off, he had a serious choice to make. Working at the Chrysler plant meant good benefits, benefits that covered the cost of the expensive drugs he needed. Meanwhile, rock bands tend not to have any benefits. But he went with the band anyway and kept the situation as secret as he could. But then in 2006, he had a change of heart. He found out that some kids were diagnosed with MS as early as age three. And now that he was in a successful band, he thought it was maybe time that he did what he could to raise awareness of MS. Aaron spends time working with the MS Society of Canada and is involved in an organization called FUMS, which organizes everything from benefit concerts to golf tournaments. Aaron's own health is under control thanks to three weekly injections of a hideously expensive drug, and he's told me that he wants to keep up his support of MS charities until there's a cure. The first song on the very first Billy Talent album is actually about Aaron and his MS. It's called This Is How It Goes. Billy Talent, and this is how it goes, a song about the fight drummer Aaron Saloniak has going against multiple sclerosis. In a moment, we'll move on to more injuries and illnesses. And we can't leave out Bono, can we? It's pretty much a miracle that U2 has survived intact without a single lineup change since March of 1978. Think about how many things could have gone wrong during that time. And U2 did pretty well until Bono started falling apart. In May 2010, the band was taking a break between legs of their massive 360 world tour. May 10th was Bono's 50th birthday, and something went wrong. Some stories say he was exercising. Others say that he was just messing about around the house. 
Whatever the case, he suddenly experienced a terrible pain in his back. Then his leg went numb. Then his leg was partially paralyzed. This obviously wasn't just some pulled muscle. He was rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. The problem was discovered to be a herniated disc and a severe compression of the sciatic nerve. The ligaments surrounding the disc had an 8mm tear and fragments of the disc had actually made it into the spinal canal, which is not good. Very delicate surgery was required to prevent the paralysis in his leg from becoming permanent. After the initial surgery, he was sent to a clinic in Munich. Meanwhile, the scheduled North American dates on the tour had to be postponed for a year. The 16 canceled dates represented a loss of about $100 million in ticket sales. It was the biggest insurance claim in the history of canceled concerts. Fortunately, though, Bono came through everything just fine, and the tour was able to resume in Italy that August. Here's a video that they posted after Bono recovered. How are you? Harry, I'm very well. Good. Thank you. Looking well. Yes, I can sit. Um, I can stand, you know. I can move around a bit, feeling strong, feeling confident, you know what I'm saying? And I am ready, um, rebuilt by German engineering, um, better design I'm told, and I'm going to be fighting fit next summer in the US, looking forward to this summer in Europe, and really actually wanted to apologize for the trouble that this injury has uh, put you all through, and uh, those of you that bought tickets, and you know, organized hotels and travel plans, it's, it's a very big deal, and uh, people go to a lot of trouble to get you two tickets, and we don't take it for granted. Thank you for standing by us in our hour of need. Uh, it was not a lot of fun uh, for me. Uh, injury was quite serious. It happened the day after my birthday, and uh, but staring at the ceiling has some advantages, enforced indolence. We've got some great songs, which you can see we've been recording, and uh, we might be playing them on stage. Anyway, there's no, nowhere else we want to be than uh, with the people who gave us this, uh, this job. And that's not Larry, that's you. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so that's Bono injury number one. Fast forward to November 2014, as U2 was getting ready for the Innocence and Experience Tour. He was riding his bike through Central Park, and he crashed hard, and the injuries were ugly. Left facial fracture involving the orbit of his eye. Left scapula, his shoulder blade, a fracture in three separate places. Left compound distal humerus fracture where the bone of his humerus was driven through his skin and the bone was broken in six different pieces. There was five hours of surgery where the album was washed out and reset. A nerve trapped in the brake was moved and the bone was repaired with three metal plates and 18 screws. Surgery was also required on his left hand to repair a fracture of his fifth metacarpal. There was a lot of rehab required, but U2 was able to get the tour off the ground. When they made it to Toronto, I asked Bono how he was doing, and looking down at his left arm, which he was still holding gingerly, he said, eh, not the best. I still don't have any feeling in two fingers. Doctors say I might never play the guitar properly again because I can't use all my fingers to form chords. 
I also asked The Edge about a silly story surrounding Bono's accident that had been making the rounds. I have a quick little aside here, and I want somebody to completely dismiss it so I have it on record. Okay. Somebody told me that when Bono crashed his bike, he was dressed as a Hasidic Jew. <laughs> that was a joke, and I'm responsible oh, for you? it. Oh, you? Oh, that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know. Somebody was saying um, on, on actually a radio interview, how come no one recognized him when he crashed? Because there was no photographs, no film, no nothing of the crash itself. So I, for a laugh, I just said, well, Bono likes to dress as a Hasidic Jew when he goes cycling. And, you know, most 95% of the people would have understood that that was a joke, but there's always that small element that takes you seriously if you say something like that. So it went out as a story. It did. And so I can confirm now that no, it's not true. I think he was wearing something that disguised him so he, people didn't know who he was, but it, yeah, it was like a, I don't know what it was, but it was not that. Okay, glad we got that cleared up, but I'm still not done. A lot of people think that Bono's sunglasses are some weird rock star affectation. That is not the case. There is a medical reason for them. Glaucoma. Glaucoma is a chronic condition of the eye that causes pressure to build up on the eyeball. If it's not treated, the optic nerve can get damaged and that may lead to blindness. One of the symptoms is a sensitivity to light, even indoors. Bono was first diagnosed with glaucoma in the early 1990s, which, as you might remember, is exactly when he started wearing sunglasses all the time. Since then, he's had all kinds of treatment, eye drops and lasers and so on. These are all treatments that can stop the glaucoma before it affects the optic nerve. Because once it gets that far, the damage cannot be undone. So, now you know the reason for the shades. You 2 and the miracle of Joey Ramone from the Songs of Innocence album, which, by the way, allows me to slide in these facts. Joey Ramone suffered from terrible OCD, as well as a genetic condition of the body's connective tissue called Marfan syndrome. This explains why he was so tall and spindly and had the curved spine. Oh, and he ended up dying of lymphoma, which overtook his body when he fell and broke his hip, forcing him to stop his chemo. Speaking of cancer, let's move on to Biff Naked one of the most fiercely independent women in the history of Canadian rock. When she was young, Biff suffered from some stomach issues. She fought against the bad eating habits of the rock and roll lifestyle and became a hardcore vegan. But on tour, a proper vegan diet turned out to be a challenge, so she ate very little, making her even tinier and slighter than she was. All her clothes were a size zero, and she confesses that she might have been anorexic. No period for 10 years. There were night sweats, anxiety issues. In 2007, a lump was discovered in her breast. She underwent chemo, a lumpectomy, and radiation treatments. The ordeal took a toll on her marriage, and she and her husband broke up. But she did make it through, and she's back making music and working as an advocate and activist for breast cancer patients. Her comeback record was called Biff Naked Forever, Acoustic Hits and Other Delights, and it includes this version of her biggest song.
Biff Naked, breast cancer survivor. Now I want to talk about Edwin Collins. Man, what this guy went through. Now let me remind you who he is. Edwin had a massive worldwide hit with this one in 1994. That's Edwin Collins and A Girl Like You. Huge hit from his album Gorgeous George. And now, the rest of the story. Sorry, I've actually always wanted to say that. Everything was going fine for Edwin until a BBC visit on February 18th, 2005. He said he was feeling unwell, dizzy, a bit nauseous, but that it was probably something he ate. Two days later, though, he was in intensive care, having suffered a major cerebral hemorrhage, bad bleeding of the brain, and then another one, and both were described as catastrophic. Those are the doctor's words. Less than a week after that radio interview, he had brain surgery to release the pressure in his skull. And for weeks afterwards, he could only say four things. Yes, no, Grace Maxwell, which is the name of his wife, and weirdly, the possibilities are endless. No one's sure why he got stuck on that phrase. But despite the very poor prognosis, Edwin pulled through. His wife, and this woman is as close to a saint as you'll find, was there every step of the way. It was her idea to help his recovery by getting Edwin to draw. She encouraged him to write in notebooks, although he had to do it with his left hand because his normal hand was rendered useless by the strokes. He still has trouble speaking. Edwin stutters a lot. But when he starts to sing, there's not a stutter to be heard. The brain is a really strange thing. Slowly, he was able to get back into music. It took four long years. He couldn't strum his guitar anymore because of that bum right hand, but he can still form chords. Eventually, he started recording again and has issued a couple of albums. Grace wrote a book about Edwin's recovery called Falling and Laughing, The Restoration of Edwin Collins, which is extremely good. And then there's the documentary from 2014 entitled, appropriately, The Possibilities Are Endless. If you're at all interested in strokes and other brain injuries and the people who deal with them, I really recommend it. Still to come, a discussion of musicians with Asperger's and a review of the most famous nauseous stomach in rock history. This is a program highlighting some of the health issues of famous musicians. We've talked about accidents and bad backs and eyesight and cancer and strokes and various diseases. Now let's talk about the mind. The brains of exceedingly creative people are wired differently. This is not a statement of judgment. It is a medical, neurological fact there is something about their minds that allow them to do and see and hear and feel things in ways the rest of us cannot. You can call it talent, you can call it inspiration, you can call it whatever you want. It's just one of those things about the human mind that science can't yet explain. For example, it seems to me that the number of musicians with some form of bipolar disorder and manic depression is higher than that of the general population. And scientists have determined that there is some kind of relationship between being bipolar and creativity. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys is bipolar, also touching on something called schizoaffective disorder. Ray Davies of the Kinks, bipolar. Lou Reed, Axl Rose, Sinead O'Connor, Scott Weiland, rapper Chris Brown, Matthew Good, Adam Ant, Britney Spears, Jack Irons, former drummer with the Chili Peppers, Scott Stapp of Creed, Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy, Frank Sinatra. And we're not just talking about above-average creativity. We're in the range of creative genius. 
The question, though, is why? Is it the fluency of thoughts manic people experience? They also speak and think and rhyme or alliteration more than non-manic people. This is a scientific fact. Is it a lack of natural inhibitions that allow them to be creative? Or is unleashing that part of their brain a way of counteracting their mania? Nobody knows. The symptoms of manic depression can be treated with drugs, but often at the expense of those creative abilities. Hey, what would you do if you were faced with that choice? We may see something similar with Asperger's syndrome, which is a disorder on the spectrum of autism. It's high-functioning autism, meaning that there's no accompanying intellectual disability. In fact, it's quite the opposite. People with this condition often become intensely interested in very specific things. At the same time, though, they have problems with social interaction. They may have trouble reading body language or facial expressions, and under certain circumstances, they can be very, very tough to live with. While it's tough to diagnose, there are musicians who are confirmed to have Asperger's. Gary Newman, Travis Meeks of Days of the News, and Susan Boyle are three. Some people suspect David Byrne of The Talking Heads may qualify. The first time I ever heard of Asperger's was in relation to Craig Nichols of The Vines, a band of Australia, which made some inroads into North America around 2001 and 2002. We started hearing about some serious erratic behavior. Some of what he did was benign, like insisting that he eat at McDonald's at least once a day. Seriously, that was one of his things. But he could also lash out violently against journalists and audiences and even his own bandmates. And this led to getting in trouble with the law. In 2005, he was officially diagnosed and agreed to therapy. That worked for a while, but then he deteriorated again and was arrested for assaulting his parents. Now he does his best by rarely going out, staying away from any 21st century technology, and spending as much time as he possibly can with his music. The Vines, featuring singer Craig Nichols, someone who struggles with Asperger's every day. Finally, Kurt Cobain. I don't think there's any doubt that Nirvana wouldn't have been what they were had Kurt been, well, well-adjusted and healthy. He was able to tap that genuine pain and anguish for his music, which is what made it so powerful. Kurt's most famous medical problem, aside from his drug addictions, was his stomach. For the last years of his life, he suffered from terrible chronic stomach pains that were never properly diagnosed, let alone treated. One guessed that it had to do with a pinched nerve in his back. Kurt did suffer from scoliosis, a curvature of the spine, as a child, and it's possible that the pain originated there. Whatever the case, part of the reason he ended up taking so many drugs, especially near the end, was because of the stomach pain. Kurt also suffered from chronic bronchitis, which didn't help his situation. It's also speculated that Kurt was bipolar. Those who knew him say he exhibited many of the signs of manic depression throughout his life. His cousin, Beverly Cobain, who is a nurse with some experience within the mental health field, wrote a book called When Nothing Else Matters, a survival guide for depressed teens. In an interview, she said, Kurt was diagnosed at a young age with ADD and then later with bipolar disorder. As Kurt undoubtedly knew, bipolar illness can be very difficult to manage and the correct diagnosis is crucial. Unfortunately for Kurt, compliance with the appropriate treatment is also a critical factor. Obviously, though, that diagnosis and that treatment, if it existed, wasn't enough.
Kurt Cobain, the drug-addicted, manic-depressive, bipolar, perpetually nauseated doom leader of Nirvana. So there we go. Musicians are just as frail as we are and subject to the same fates as anyone. There are others that could have made this list. Johnny Lydon, who came down with a terrible case of meningitis as a kid, which left him comatose for nearly a year. The after effects give him that distinctive stare. Ian Jury of the Blockheads, he lived his entire life with polio. All the musicians who live with hepatitis C as the result of drug abuse. David Bowie's heart condition and the heart attack that killed Joe Strummer. And we could spend an entire show just on artists who suffer from depression. Maybe this is a topic that we need to revisit in the future. Meanwhile, I'm here for you at alan at alancross.ca. You can also go to my website, a journal of musicalthings.com, which is updated every day. And you should get the free newsletter that comes with that too. I'm all over Facebook, so you can find me there, Twitter, Instagram, Google+. There is no reason we cannot connect. I do look forward to that. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 